today on CityCast Madison. The UN's Paris Agreement calls for global greenhouse gas emissions to be net zero by 2050. UW-Madison's new environmental sustainability initiative will help get us there locally. This effort includes three goals, procuring 100% renewable electricity on campus by 2030, achieving a zero waste campus by 2040, and reaching net zero emissions in time for UW-Madison's 200th anniversary in 2048. Today, Vice Chancellor Cindy Torstveit and Dean Paul Robbins with the Nelson Institute join me to explain how UW-Madison intends to meet these ambitious sustainability goals. It's Monday, February 26th. I'm Dylan Brogan, and here's what Madison's talking about. Paul, Cindy, thank you for joining me on CityCast Madison. Glad to be here. Yes, and thank you for having us. All right, Paul, the UW has identified some big goals for sustainability. What's driving this effort? We're citizens of the state of Wisconsin. We're big citizens. We have a big footprint. When we converted from coal to natural gas on this campus more than a decade ago, sulfur dioxide levels fell throughout the region. Uh, Particulate matter fell. When we do something, it matters. Uh, And when we don't do something, we're bad citizens, frankly. And these goals are about citizenship. I, I cannot emphasize how terrific it is to see us making a zero waste, uh, energy transition, forward thinking uh, set of decisions like this. Super exciting for everybody. So one of those goals is to have 100% renewable electricity on campus by 2030. Doesn't seem that far off. That's only a few years away. So Cindy, how the heck are we going to do that? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. It's an ambitious goal, but if you don't have an ambitious goal, you can't you can't really meet it, right? So um, we are in the process of launching a study so we can really understand how to decarbonize our heating and cooling systems. So that's some of the behind the scenes stuff that we're doing, so that we have a better understanding of how should we do this. Because as Paul was saying, you know, we have 400 buildings on campus. And when we do things, we really have a large impact, but we can also have a global impact by learning how to do do things with our researchers that can then be implemented in other places. So we've got a very ambitious strategy to add additional solar, to add um, more clean energy sources, and work with our partners such as Alliant and MG&E um, to, to work on these big issues. How close are we to meeting the goal? How close are we? Um, Well, (laughs) that's a probably tougher question to answer at this point. I think we're in the process of doing several studies that looks at where we're at right now and how we are going to get there. I know there's a lot of moving pieces to that, too. And and the UW's fleet is going to be electric, right? Is in the, And there's a lot of movement happening there? Yes, that is something that we're working on right now, um, a study on how can we electrify our fleet, um, not only the, the vehicles that we use to go from place to place, but also some of the larger vehicles. And as the industry comes out with more of the garbage trucks and some of those bigger pieces of equipment, I think the city is also doing this. How are we looking at those pieces of equipment so we can you know, we can change those to electric. One of the things we've done is we've partnered with the city on new electric buses that hopefully you'll see next next year on campus. And then we've also started to put 
more kiosks in our bus stations that are powered by new solar panels on top of our bus kiosks. So you'll see those on campus as well. When we talk about where we're at on our energy consumption, we partner with MG&E. So by getting to 2030, MG&E's goal is also to get to 2030 and they supply a little over 80% of the electricity on campus. So while we're doing everything we can to produce energy on campus, they're also moving their goal forward and that impacts us. So we are actively having conversations with them on achieving that goal. And we think it's very reasonable that we can get to that goal at for 2030. Yeah, Paul, do you have anything to add about how this is all going to get done? I do, actually. So remember, we got two goals. One's a zero waste goal and one's an energy goal or a, or a, or a carbon goal. What if you brought those two together? It would require some innovation. But imagine that uh, the amount of food waste, right? Half the food produced in the world actually goes uneaten. Uh, that's true in Madison and it's true in Africa. What would happen if you took all of that food waste that comes out of the kitchens, that comes off of the, the food service for students, and you put it into a dry waste biodigester, a uh, clean biodigester that from a methane-based energy production, what you do is you'd close the circle. You'd have a closed circle, a loop, where the, the very reduction of food waste actually generates energy. That's going to require innovation. It's going to require more research. Teams of people in biological systems engineering, teams of people at the Wisconsin Energy Institute. But if you twin those goals, like everything in sustainability, you produce efficiencies. And this can happen fast with the right will and the right science. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. And, and I don't think it's uh, necessarily obvious that just like the food waste thing. Why does that contribute to climate change, food waste? Well, food waste, when, when food, un, uneaten food biodegrades essentially into methane, which has a forcing on the global climate system seven times greater than carbon dioxide. By capturing that methane and through a digestion process where microbes break down the food in a, in a sealed environment, you actually capture that and then are able to burn it for energy, which off-gasses as CO2 with, with a much lower footprint. And you've just turned all that waste that would simply be forcing gas into energy, which you just didn't burn something to get. You didn't burn coal, you didn't burn gas, you burn muffins. And in the process, you produce energy. So you get this double savings. It's a, it's a super clean model. It's been used in other communities around the country and in Wisconsin. And there's a precedent at UW Oshkosh, which we can follow here. So Cindy, sticking with zero waste by 2040, is there composting at UW's uh, buildings now? Is that something that needs to be scaled up? Um, where's all this food waste going to go? Uh, what's the plan for zero waste? I think right now in terms of food waste, we have collected about 191 tons of food scraps that were diverted from landfills in this last year Uh you know, as part of this food waste collection pilot program we've been doing, and we're going to continue to expand that. Um, we work really closely with housing, with all of the various groups on campus to really think about this and how we're doing this. We're also piloting a program called Oscar Sort. So it tells us exactly what we're putting in where, and we can do better on our waste and recycling and where are we composting and where can we, we do better. Yeah. And, and Paul, do you think there's buy-in from faculty, students, staff to do all this composting? Well, I, I'll say there's two answers to that question. The good news answer is a lot of this is being driven by students. Let me tell you that the students are pushing hard. They're in front of the administration. They're in front of the faculty. They're in front of me, literally at my desk all the time saying, what are we doing? 
So the level of enthusiasm in the student body and certainly amongst our, our the professoriate and, and, and the staff, to, uh, I want to be inclusive of um, the whole employee group, they want this done. They're making these demands and it's coming out in resolutions that come out of the faculty senate, the staff senate, and the associated students of Madison. So let me be super clear. This is a mandate that's coming from them. So yes, they are on board. Having said that, I believe that any solution that depends on the average consumer being able to sort 15 different kinds of recycling materials, five different types of biodegradable materials into bin orange, bin purple, and bin green is doomed to failure. And all the behavioral studies back me up on this. The social science on this is excellent. What we need then, if we, know, if we acknowledge that it's complicated and it's hard, is to take it off the backs of the average student and put it into the institution's machinery, which is why Cindy's commitment is so important. What's coming out of facilities is this vision for a campus-wide way to manage these waste streams, to manage these energy systems. So it isn't just what we were talking about in 1975, switch off the lights and turn off the tap. Hey, I believe in the 50 simple things to save the earth, as we used to say, but really an institution of this scale needs institutional building solutions. If a building is composting, then its residences don't have to worry for a half hour every day about how to sort their junk. And that, that's the innovation. I mean, Cindy, is like a single stream system possible or are we talking one or two streams? Well, I, I think it is possible, right? I think we're already kind of doing that with waste and recycling. We've got a waste and recycling team that goes out there now. And they're they're sorting when, even when we're taking and decommissioning and updating our labs, they're taking the equipment out and pulling out different parts of the items that are coming out and pulling wires and, and really sorting it back at the waste and compost site. So they are... They're really looking at this behind the scenes, as Paul was saying, and we're looking at it even in the trash collection that we do every day on campus. You know, that's why the Oscar sort system is so important for us. You know, it, it gives us this electronic categorization of what's in there. So how can we better serve campus where they don't have to think about it? We're thinking about it for them and we're taking care of it behind the scenes. What, what is this Oscar sort system? Well, um, Oscar Sort, my understanding of it is, and I'm not a technical expert, um, it measures the types of waste that is in the recycle bin and what goes into the dumpsters. So it tells us exactly what's in there and it helps us sort out you know, how much is metal, how much is plastic, how much is food waste, so that we can then start to sort that out better. And we know then where we're collecting what types of things. So we can do a better job when we are collecting those items and bringing them back to the proper facility. So one of the other big goals here on campus is to have net zero emissions in roughly 25 years, meaning that the campus will overall not be emitting greenhouse gases, you know, that are contributing to climate change. Cindy, how are we going to do that? I know I keep asking you these big questions, but uh, you think that's too ambitious of a goal? I mean, what really needs to be done? Well, 
I think we have to look at everything, you know, we're in which we are. We're taking a holistic approach. We're going into our next set of 10-year long-term planning for what is the campus plan? What is our utility plan? And I think a big part of that is going to be looking at how are we delivering heat and cooling across the campus And that's where that study really is important. We first have to get through that study to say, what are the different ways we can do this? We have to partner with our researchers on new alternative ways to, you know, heat water to create steam and chill water to create cooling for our buildings, which is really, really important to us. And that's a big thing. That's a big part of it. But it's also how are we building our buildings? What are the material selections we're doing? So how can we as we bring buildings online, how can we make them as sustainable as possible while still meeting the resiliency goals, the delivery goals of our research and our academic institution, because they still have to really function. But we all want clean air, clean water. We want energy efficiency and we want to do it the right way. Um, you know, knowing we have labs and hospitals that require 24-7 um, heating and cooling. So it's not just, as Paul said, going back and, oh, we're going to turn the lights off. Sometimes we can't do that. We have to be really thoughtful about what we're doing. So we're not only doing it with our heating and cooling systems, we're doing it in our material selection and how we're, we're creating our new spaces. And, and UW, you know, famously runs on steam and a lot. Of, is it, is it going to be running on steam in 2048? It's just all about how that Water becomes steam or? Right. I mean, steam is environmentally friendly. <laughs> you know, it, it's a good thing and it's very efficient and it's cost effective. But it's how do you heat that? How do you heat the water to create the steam? You know, what are what are you using? I think we made a, a large move to go, as Paul said, from coal to natural gas. And I think part of that natural gas is also somewhat this biogas that we're burning. So we, we made great strides there. But resiliency is something that we really we look at that as something that's very important, knowing we serve four hospitals. So if we are not producing heat or cooling when they need it. That's a problem. So we're, we're like a big cruise ship. We move slow, but we move very deliberately. And so I think that's also why we need to work with our researchers to see what are other options out there. You know, we've been looking at wind, we've been looking at solar, we've been looking at our partnerships uh, with Alliant and MG&E. Those are really, really important to us. And I think we'll get there. We've got a lot of amazing minds. Cindy's right on. And if you add to that, we control a lot of land in this state. We are landlords of a vast, vast quantity of acreage. Now, again, 80% of the electrical budget is going to, in the end, be determined by our partnership with a utility. But what can we do on this side of the meter is going to involve, for a goal that is a net reduction, using those lands in ways that either sequester carbon or otherwise participate in the larger system of energy exchange that's going to bring that budget down. And we have a real opportunity to do science on those lands. That's what those lands were set aside for, for research and education. And if we look at opportunities like, for example, agrovoltaics, where you're doing electrical generation, even while you're getting all the added benefits of actual agricultural production or the production of biodiversity, whether that's uh, pollinators or, or otherwise, you can do multi-purposes at once, and nobody's going to do it if the university's not going to experiment with it first. All the ideas will come from us. Yeah, our first agrovoltaic uh, project is is happening right now in 
at our Kaganza Research Center. So we're in the process of planning and, and building out a large solar array and agrivoltaics research center over there where we're going to learn how do you, you know, farm the land and, you know, have agricultural research and science going on while you're also generating enough energy to power 450 homes. That's huge, right? So it kind of goes also back to this Wisconsin idea of we're not just doing this for campus, but we're doing it for all, right? How do we really serve the community while we're doing this? It's easy to forget that, but it's a statewide institution for sure. Um, and, and, and Paul, okay, I want to get back to campus though. Paul, when we think about the land use on, on campus and its carbon footprint, wouldn't it be better off if Bascom Hill were, say, Bascom Forest or Bascom Prairie? I know you famously are a little critical of lawns. What do you think we could do in, in that front? I am famous for a book on lawns, I'm afraid, and I, I, it was never my intention to become the lawn guy. But there are opportunities when you have a living campus to experiment with land uses that can be generative, that can sequester carbon, that can be wonderful places to visit. What's happening at the Lakeshore Nature Preserve with the, the recent gift that uh, is going to bring more people to that land? I mean, remember, all that land is restored. That marsh, that beautiful marsh out there was a mess. The university has been great stewards of that land. So lots of opportunities to put solar in over parking. I mean, the ideally, you get rid of parking, right? And we all fly to work on electrical helicopters. But in reality, to the degree that the automobile is going to be with us, there's a lot of land use associated with the parking mission, which can easily be energy productive and energy positive. Lots of opportunities. If you're going to try to get me to say that facilities should pull out the turf on Bascom and replace it with Prairie, this will not be the interview where I say that because my friend Cindy would have to answer for it. But there are opportunities on this campus like that to create friendly, biodiverse ecosystems. And I think facilities is thinking that way in a really exciting way. All right. Paul didn't fall for the bait there. But uh, Cindy, what? go Prairie. You, you look like you wanted to add something. Well, I think Paul makes a really great point about our new Lakeshore Nature Preserve Frouchy Center that is is going to be coming online. It is going to be our first net positive energy facility, and it's going to be a learning laboratory where we can play on a smaller scale. How do we really look at zero carbon buildings? How do we look at more net positive energy buildings? This is, you know, from my perspective, it's a 10,000 square foot facility, which is fairly small. I, we've got some that are closer to 400,000 gross square feet, right? So how do we then scale that up and train our staff on how to maintain and how to service those buildings? So it's really amazing gift and an amazing structure that is really going to make us a leader in how we think about our new building program, how we really are good stewards of the land and good stewards of the environment for a long time to come. So it's very exciting. Yeah. So you're, you're mentioning that UW is building a, a Lakeshore Nature Center near Picnic Point. So you mentioned some of the things, but yeah, is that part of the broader vision of uh, these climate goals? Like how does this Lakeshore Nature Center fit into all that? Yes, I think it is part of the, the broader vision. You know, the Lakeshore Nature Preserve does a lot of research currently. They work with students, they work with the community. This is sort of the next step in how are we really thinking about construction and how are we thinking about our buildings on campus? You know, Paul, many people know Aldo Leopold's uh, conservation legacy, but 
you know, that work was done nearly a century ago. Uh, who's at the forefront of environmental innovation in Wisconsin right now? Well, the university is. If you take a look at energy research that's going on on this campus, what's happening at the Wisconsin Energy Institute, uh, for example, if you take a look at battery research, none of this happens without batteries, by the way. It's not sexy. It's not, it, it's not visible. It ha doesn't have a giant windmill associated with it. But if you can't store energy, the entire system fails. And we have chemists, unsung heroes of sustainability, who are toiling away in our fantastic Department of Chemistry, who are working on cutting-edge battery research. And then around the social sciences, around the question of environmental education, around the question of uh, of changing people's thinking towards system thinking, everybody who teaches this stuff, who's working with students and who's putting the next generation of students in place is that revolutionary steward. Aldo Leopold is, you cannot say a bad thing about Aldo Leopold. On the other hand, what's happening now is so much further ahead than we were in 1950. Remember that in 1955, I have to say this, 1950, 1940, around 1940, okay, so Leopold's time, he flirted with the idea, the terrible idea, that the Sandhill Crane would be extinct within the next 20 years. There were only a handful of mating pairs remaining. There are a million birds in North America, giant flying Sandhill Cranes, because somebody stewarded the watersheds, because somebody planted the, the grasslands, because farmers learned to live with their bird neighbors. The revolution that happened there is a Wisconsin revolution, and that is happening on the campus all the time. And I'll say one last thing. The last place you'd expect it, the private sector, is demanding that sustainable research and students who can speak sustainability come into their firms. So we have an internship program with private sector partners, and they say, yes, I, I don't want a sustainability student. I want a lawyer. I want an engineer. I want somebody who knows how to do the business of business, but I don't want to have to teach them sustainability, first, because I don't know it, and second, because that's difficult for me. I need the university to do that which means that the generational shift is the biggest contribution that this university can make. That 40,000 students who are on the campus now, that's 40,000 engines of innovation who are gonna be out in, in the public. That's where the revolution's happening. Not one guy on a piece of land in Baraboo. It's a broader revolutionary change. Mm -hmm. I know what you're saying, that it's uh, bigger than one person, but you know, I think someone like Gaylord Nelson obviously has deep ties to Wisconsin. Do we need another environmental champion like that from Wisconsin that could help steward of this, or, or is it really just a, it, it has to be a, a collective goal? I mean, the good news is that what makes them extraordinary is that they were extraordinary. That's the problem. That they were singular is exactly the challenge we're trying to overcome. You want a million, you want a billion Gaylord Nelsons now. That's what you want. And that's closer to the truth than it was in 1945. I know I, I sound naive, but I'm not. As I say, this is a student-driven initiative. It's being demanded by people. It's the lack of how extraordinary it is. It's the banality of this revolution that makes it both hidden and extremely exciting. So I, I'm going to push back. I don't think we need another revolutionary. I don't think we need another Ralph Nader. I served him a cup of coffee, by the way, up at the Capitol one day in 1985. He's great. But we don't need that. What we need is a change fundamentally at the very base. Everybody in their house, everybody at their job, everybody in their families. And we're much closer to that now than we were even in the night during the 1970s revolution. Cindy, Paul, 
we have to have you back on uh, because there's a lot to talk here. So, Cindy and Paul, thank you so much for for telling us about UW's goals as a, in terms of climate change, and we look forward to seeing how this work progresses. Great, thank you. Thanks, Tilly. That was Cindy Torsveit, Associate Vice Chancellor for Facilities Planning and Management, and Paul Robbins, Dean of the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Dylan Brogan. If you enjoyed the show, why not share this episode with a reluctant composter? Tell them it's not degrading. We'll be back here tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Until then, 